Our text from the day is taken from Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. While he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and in those days told no one any of these things that they had seen. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Friends, this passage has something to do with Jesus' true identity. While the disciples have known him in one way, now it is revealed to him the truer picture of his identity. Now, in the coming weeks, we are beginning a Lenten series called the I Am Sayings of Jesus because Jesus had something to say about who he is. Each week, we'll take one of those seven sayings and unpack it with, along with the context that displays its meaning more fully as we get a more rounded picture of who Jesus is, not only for the disciples, but for our current day. Knowing who you are and other people knowing who you are is absolutely essential in some circumstances. When I was growing up in that little community of Welcome, North Carolina, from the time I was 10 years of age till well into high school, I worked at a local Purina feed store owned by Charlie Nolan. That feed store had what was called a roller mill. Farmers would bring their crops of corn or wheat or other grains and we could grind them into cattle feed or horse feed, whatever the formula needed to be. We also had a broad array of ready mixed and bagged feed for cattle, etc., plus a plethora of seeds and fertilizers if you had a garden or had a farm, we pretty much could supply it. On rainy days, like today, only a bit warmer, farmers who couldn't get in the field would sometimes come into the store just to pass some time, find out the latest going-ons, what the price per head of cattle was, and what crops were going for per bushel. And one day, a fellow came in in his bib overalls, big chawa tobacco in one side of his mouth. And it was my custom to get up very quickly and greet them as they came in the door. It was a gravel parking lot. It just had a kind of a single 36-inch wide door where they would come in. And I'd meet them at the door and I'd say, hey, uh, how can I help you? 
And this fellow comes in and I kind of accost him there at the front door and I offered to help and he didn't say a word. He just looked me from head to toe and then toe to head and then he turned and spit sideways out the door into the parking lot, shifted that chaw of tobacco from one side of his jaw to the other side of his jaw and then he said, Whose boy are you? Well, he wanted to know something of my family. He didn't know me. He wanted to know my identity. And so when I told him I was Marvin Lyon's son and J.M. Lyon's grandson, he knew both those people, and he knew their good name in the community, so he extended a little grace to me, and we had a conversation. Identity is important. And in order to understand the full impact of what's going on in this passage of Scripture this morning, we have to do a bit of a flashback. So we're going to go back into the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, to Matthew chapter 16. Now, all three synoptic Gospels have this account of the transfiguration of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, Jesus has been taking the disciples on a journey and they arrive in the region of Caesarea Philippi. It's on the edge of Gentile territory. And he says to them kind of out of the blue, who do people say that I am? What are folks saying about me? And the disciples respond pretty quickly. Well, some say that you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Jeremiah or some other prophet. And Jesus then sharpens the focus, sharpens the focus a bit. And he says, but who do you say that I am? Peter, bold, impetuous Peter, speaks forth immediately. He says, without reservation, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus affirms him. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And on this rock, Peter, I will build my church. And he goes on to say several affirming things, but then there's a shift. This is called the watershed moment where everything has been building to this point seemingly in the same direction when all at once, because of something that is said, something that is revealed, the whole direction is changed. And Jesus begins telling them that the Messiah may not be bringing the kingdom they expect. In fact, he says, he is going to be mistreated in Jerusalem. He is going to be beaten. He is going to be killed and he will be resurrected. The disciples want nothing to do with that. It's one thing to be following your rabbi and obeying his teachings, but they were expecting to follow him into a glorious kingdom, great, grand, spectacular. But now Jesus says, these are the things that are going to happen to me, and if they happen to their rabbi, to their teacher, to their master, it's likely their path will be similar. Peter immediately steps forward and says, this cannot be. It will not happen. God forbid that it would happen. It cannot happen. And Jesus, who talked about Peter being the rock, now tells him to get behind him, Satan, 
for you have become a stumbling block, a stumbling rock, not a rock to build on, but something that would derail the mission. Watershed moments. When you think it's going in one direction, but it goes in a totally different direction, and yet after Jesus continues to teach them of the hardship and what will be required of them, knowing their reluctance to believe, their, reluct their reluctance to embrace, still after about a week, gathers Peter, James, and John and takes them to a mountain to pray. Now I find that just fascinating. He takes Peter, who's been a thorn in his flesh for not wanting to accept what Jesus has said, what Jesus has taught. But there's a plan. When Jesus is there on the mountain, and as Jesus is praying, the text tells us that his very countenance was changed, his face was changed. The garments that he was wearing became radiant in their whiteness, much whiter and brighter than any bleach or launderer could affect. This is an amazing revelation. And what they are being given privy to is the essence of his divine nature. It is almost like it is a confirmation in their disbelief of what they don't want to happen. There is this revelation that says, here is an affirmation of who he is, and if this is who he is, what he says will come to pass. Not only is he transfigured, but there are two other figures that are seen with him. Now, the text says this interesting thing. It says, though they were heavy with sleep. How do you be heavy with sleep when that's going on? But friends, it's not the last time we will see them heavy with sleep. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is there? He begs them to stay awake while he goes and prays, yet he finds them weary and asleep. The text indicates that they managed to rouse enough to see these two figures. I don't know that they were wearing name tags. I mean, they hadn't seen any photographs of these guys, Moses and Elijah. How did they know who they were? They just knew. Divine revelation. And what they are doing is having converse. That's, we sang that word in a hymn just a moment ago. They're having conversation with Jesus about what Jesus is going to be doing in Jerusalem. The very thing Jesus has said is going to happen to him that the disciples don't want to happen, don't want to believe. Moses and Elijah are affirming and agree. Now Moses and Elijah are the two preeminent figures of the Old Testament. Moses, Moses, that man that God chose to be the deliverer of the children of Israel out of the Pharaoh's bondage in Egypt. Moses, that man through whom God gives the Ten Commandments that would form the community of God's particular and peculiar people. Moses, that one tradition tells us is the author of the first five books of the Bible. He is held in such high regard. And Elijah, the greatest of all prophets. When the land was besought with idol worship, when the false god Baal was embraced by the king and the queen, 
Ahab and Jezebel. Elijah was called of God for a confrontation to beckon to the people of God who had lost their way, to restore the broken altars of Yahweh, to come from their wicked ways. He is so revered. These two luminary figures of the Old Testament, this is an incredible, an incredible sight for these disciples to see. But then, then it seems that Elijah and Moses are leaving. I don't know if they were dematerializing like they do on Star Trek with the transporter beam or they were just kind of making their way down the path of the mountain. But Peter wants to preserve this moment. He wants to savor this moment. This is too great, too grand, too spectacular for it to pass. And he blurts out, Lord, let me build three booths, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And the text says he didn't know what he was saying. Wasn't the first time, wouldn't be the last time. I do that sometimes. Full of what I think is faith, I make a pronouncement, I say something that I have to retract and think better of. You see what Peter was saying by making these boos is that Jesus is one among the equals. Making a booth would be reminiscent of what went on at the Feast of Tabernacles every fall of the year when the harvest would come in. There would be a celebration of this wonderful bounty, but two, there is a celebration of God's deliverance and provision in the wilderness journey. So the Jewish males would build up a little tent, a little tabernacle. And they would spend those seven nights of the festival there remembering God's great and abundant goodness. The text says before Peter could finish speaking, a cloud comes to them, a cloud comes to them and engulfs them and they are sore afraid. And the voice speaks from the cloud, this is my beloved son. Different translations have a nuanced a bit. This is my beloved son. We've heard that before. We've heard that before at his baptism when the heavens parted and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove came down and alighted and the voice said, this is my beloved son. But here there's a proclamation. Listen to him. Suddenly the voice ceases. The voice ceases and when the air is cleared from the cloud, they see Jesus standing alone, peerless, no one equal, no one above, Jesus alone. It is the symbol of the continuity of God's great work in the Old Testament, joining together with what Christ is doing in this superior way of the transfiguration and the new covenant that Christ will bring. Don't you wish you could have been there? You know, I, I think if I had been there, I, I, if I could have been with Moses on the mountainside, if I could have seen the tremendous flashes of lightning, the rumble of the thunder that shook the mountain, at the smoke that was spewing out, and, and all of the trumpet sounds, I would have been overwhelmed by the great and the grand and the spectacular and I would have been so filled with the awe of God, I just know that from that moment on, I could have been faithful no matter what. 
There's nothing in this world that could have come against me that would shake my confidence because of what I experienced there. Or to be with Elijah on that mountain where single-handedly he faced down those many hundred prophets of Baal. And God came through. And how Elijah then ran ahead because he had told Ahab, Ahab had witnessed this event, he had told Ahab to go and tell Queen Jezebel, who was the instigator of this worship, this worship of Baal. And he expected, Elijah expected, when word got to Jezebel, she would fall to her knees in repentance at the overwhelming, spectacular, great and grand act that God had done. Or if I'd been with Peter, James, and John, certainly, certainly the revealing of the transfigured Christ would strike me so deeply, so profoundly. There is nothing that would be able to shake me. But the truth is, it doesn't happen. The children of Israel, though awestruck and fearful, failed time and time again to be faithful. How many years did they spend in the wilderness? Forty years trying to find the way to be faithful? Elijah called the nation back to repentance, and yet it was so slow in coming, and many never did. And Peter, James, and John, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the armed guards came, fled in fear. And Peter, in the courtyard, as Jesus was being abused inside that building and interrogated, denied that he had ever known Jesus. If those folks who experienced the great and the grand and the spectacular could not remain faithful, what hope is there for somebody like me? And maybe you. I think maybe, maybe there's something to what the voice in the cloud had to say. This is my beloved son and more. Listen to him. To listen to him is to imply proximity, to be close enough on an ongoing basis to hear well what he has to share with us. Now, friends, I know that anytime we use a human analogy to talk about the divine, we're going to fall far short but I think there might be one that can help us approach this mystery. If I, think, if I think about an extraordinarily healthy and meaningful marriage relationship, I would hope in that marriage relationship there are moments of the great and the grand and the spectacular. But I know for the most part, for the most part, in those marriages that are enriched, that are deeply meaningful and significant and enduring in peace and grace toward one another. It is built over time by what is practiced day by day. If we practice being fully attentive to each other, 
if we practice servanthood each to the other, if we practice affirmation, if we practice listening and really hearing, if we share life's good and bad, if we offer the best that we are and are honest when we are at the worst that we are. A fabric can be woven in that kind of relationship that endures and is strong and can last the test of time. Is it any wonder then that Jesus referred to himself as the bridegroom and his church as the bride? Not so much as the consummation of a human being's marriage relationship in that physical way, but rather the giving of each to the other in an intimacy that only can be shared when each is willing to give totally and trust it with the other. You see, the church is not our beautiful campus. The church is you and me. And both as the community gathered together and as individuals within it, Christ is the bridegroom and we are the bride, invited to share in the intimacy of that relationship, practicing day by day those things that allow us to be close to Christ, to drink deeply of his spirit, to know him intimately, and for ourselves to be known intimately, even in our brokenness and our lack. That's why it's so important for us to gather together in times of worship, whether where we're in community with one another. We make ourselves available to the working of the Holy Spirit to us individually and as the body as we come together acknowledging whose we are and claim our identity as Christ followers. We do that when we align ourselves in prayer with him on an intentional, ongoing basis because what we are doing is placing ourselves in a posture where we can hear, not just speak. And if we practice that day by day, if we practice it in our, in our ways of serving, what we are doing is not just feeding the hungry or clothing the naked, what we are doing is finding the face of Jesus in the midst of those circumstances. And Christ becomes, becomes known to us, and we become, we become more deeply known. What are we practicing day by day? And if we continue as we are, who will we become? She was older, and the time had come, as some folks would say, to break up housekeeping. It had become too much for her maintaining that house. It had been some years since the love of her life had passed. And she had soldiered bravely on, but now, now in her wisdom, not coerced in any way, she decided it was time to make the transition. And so her granddaughter was helping Nana with the final things. Most things had been gone through and sorted, some things given to charity, and they were in the house for the last time. Granddaughter pushing Nana in the wheelchair from room to room for one last look. 
The furniture that she was taking with her to the apartment in the retirement community was already gone and in place. And they were waiting for the movers to come and simply take the rest and get it to folks who could use it. When granddaughter wheeled Nana into the bedroom, granddaughter absently minded just pulled one of the drawers open by the nightstand where the mattresses were leaned up against the wall. And in it, she saw a box. It was a little box covered in crushed blue velvet. She picked up the box and looked at it, and immediately, immediately, Nana said, I want the box. And the granddaughter said, Nana, there's nothing in the box. It's empty. It's just a box. I want the box. And reaching out, reaching out with hands wrapped in tissue-thin skin and blue veins, she tenderly took the box and held it close. Gently as she opened it, she ran her finger over that place in the box where her engagement ring had been. when he had knelt on one knee and asked her to share life. It was a great and grand and spectacular moment, and they had had lots in their life. But for the most part, as she rubbed that place, she remembered the quiet moments, the deep sharing of their life through the good and the ill, through the thin places as well as through the feast. And then closing the box, she put it in her lap and she said, I'm ready to go. So it is in our faith journey, friends. There is one who says, I will go with you without fail. You are my treasured and precious child. I want to embrace you and stand with you when the horizons may have deepening and darkening clouds and the valleys may seem to have no bottom. I will give you something to hold and someone who will hold you. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you for your steadfast love, for your endearing presence, your relentless seeking of us, whether it be on the mountainsides, great, grand, spectacular, or in the still, small voice, when we are at our lowest place, you never forsake us. You always seek to embrace us. May we then catch glimpses, glimpses of your divinity. And may it become transfiguring of us that more and more as we practice those means by which you are made known to us and we can be fully be made known to you, that Christ is formed in us and revealed through us. And we are not only changed, but the world around us is blessed. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray.
Amen.